0: Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Carlos Algara, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Texas at El Paso. Dr. Algara's research agenda focuses on the nature of ideological representation in the United States, political parties, electoral accountability, legislative behavior, and what factors inform the policy preferences of the mass public. Prior to coming to UTEP, Dr. Algarra was a 2019 through 2020 American Political Science Association Congressional Fellow, placed in the United States Senate. Dr. Algarra, thank you so much for joining us during this very hectic week. How have you been holding up over the past few days?
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Ben, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast. Uh, it's been a it's been a long couple of days since Tuesday. Um, you know, I think uh, the country is seeing degree of variation when it comes to election administration and counting and which states allow mail-in ballots and when can they be counted. Uh, so it's been a relatively long week, but I'm looking forward to seeing the election results. And uh, we might not even be over with two uh, Senate runoffs in Georgia, which may decide control of the United States Senate. Uh, so it's going to be, a, you know, the election might not be over for quite a bit of time.
0: Yeah, it's really quite a lot. Those Georgia elections could take place in January, right?
1: That's correct. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, first of all, can you give us a picture of where we currently stand with the presidential election and key Senate and congressional races? Uh, We're recording this two days after the 2020 election for our audience.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll provide a context of, you know, the presidential and then, you know, we'll, we'll go to the congressional because one sort of informs the other. Uh, currently, the way things stand, um, you know, Joe Biden is very well positioned to be the next president of the United States. Uh, you know, we're waiting on Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada and Arizona and North Carolina. And for the president to be reelected, he has to run the table and win all of those states. Currently, uh, Donald Trump is leading in Pennsylvania and in Georgia, and Joe Biden is leading in Nevada and Arizona. Uh, So Donald Trump is gaining in Arizona as we get some of the late uh, mail-in ballots that are being counted. Uh, Joe Biden's currently in the lead, and it's really on a knife's edge, and that will be a running theme uh, throughout the course of this discussion on the context. Uh, Joe Biden appears to be ahead in Nevada. Uh, and the remaining vote appears to be out of Clark County, which is a Democratic county, um, which of course, you know, carries Las Vegas in it. Uh, so Joe, Joe Biden's very well positioned to win Nevada. Assuming that he does that, uh, he has to win either Pennsylvania, Georgia or Arizona. Like I mentioned, Donald Trump has to run the table. Uh, Georgia is changing by the hour. Uh, as we record this podcast, um, you know Donald Trump has an 8,500 vote lead with more votes to be counted in Atlanta, which is a Democratic stronghold. Exactly where uh, where Donald Trump is, is, he's quickly losing ground by the hour. Um, you know, so that's sort of at a knife's edge. Uh, perhaps more troubling for the Trump campaign is looking at Arizona and just seeing that you know this, these fluctuations, at least. Up to this point, haven't really changed the dynamics of the race. And Fox News has called Arizona, and uh, and the Associated Press has called Arizona. If Joe Biden wins Arizona, that's the ballgame. Uh, Pennsylvania is looking at it is is headed towards a photo finish, and it appears that um, you know Donald Trump's lead. And these are all mail in ballots that are being counted in Pennsylvania. Legally, they couldn't count them prior to election day, and Joe Biden's carrying those by you know an eighty twenty margin, assuming that continues, uh, Joe Biden is a, is in very well positioned to win Pennsylvania. So when this is all said and done, um, Joe Biden has the potential of winning all these states, and that's a greater likelihood than Donald Trump. Uh, uh, you know, then uh, you know just briefly touching on the Senate and the House, the Republicans have gained in the House. Um, Nobody saw that coming, Um, you know, they might gain between seven and 12 seats, uh, you know, cutting that Democratic majority almost uh, in half, Um, you know, looking towards 2022, they'll be very well positioned to take back control of the House of Representatives. In the U.S. Senate, Democrats have fallen short. Um, You know, they left seats on the table in Maine, in North Carolina, two two states that they thought were uh, they were very well positioned to win. And frankly, two states where the Democratic nominee has been um, leading for quite some time. So those are two relative upsets. So with that goes the Senate majority with the caveat that we'll have two Georgia runoffs in January that will decide control of the U.S. Senate. Um, And so so my apologies in advance to Georgians. Uh, You're going to be bombarded with a lot of money and a lot of ads, um, you know, because that's (laughs) zero. But that's you know, that's where we currently stand.
0: Building on that, what voting demographics made their voices heard at the polls? Who turned out for Democrats and Republicans this election?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, and we don't, we're, we're still waiting on some good data on that. Um, you know, exit polls obviously have mythological flaws in it, um, you know, because you're, you're only sampling voters that turned out, um, you know, you're not sampling voters that didn't turn out. Uh, looking at the aggregate data, it's very clear that, uh, you know, Donald Trump turned out a lot more voters than we thought he would. Um you know, he turned out a lot more voters in, in Florida and in Texas, uh, you know, really sort of canceling out, um, you know, the, the gains that the Democrats made. And I think it's important to sort of consider in this election cycle. We've seen some dramatic partisan polarization in how people are voting. Um, partly, this is a function of elite cues from, you know, from Democrats and Donald Trump you know, Donald Trump more saliently. Trump told his supporters to vote on election day to not, you know, he was lambasting um, absentee ballots. He was lambasting mail-in voting. Uh, he he made a couple statements um, that are unfounded with respect to fraud when it comes to mail-in voting. Um, and Democrats really took advantage of of the states that had mail-in voting. And we're seeing that in Pennsylvania, a state that traditionally had very low mail-in voting. And it looks like if Biden wins, it will be on the strength of, of those votes and that sort of operation. Um, Republicans turned out on Election Day. Uh, that's why you're seeing a lot of the sizable leads in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. You know, on election night, he was up, um, you know, pretty substantially in Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. Um, Wisconsin, you know, has been called for Biden. Um, and Michigan has been called for Biden. Uh, So, you know, the, the irony here is that, you know, if we can observe a counterfactual is, could Donald Trump have won this election? If, you know, he did not, you know, if he emphasized more mail-in voting and, you know, um, would people, would more Republicans have voted, Um, you know, because most of them appear to have shown up on Election Day. So it's going to be very interesting to see more data to see exactly not only who turned out, but also, you know, what method did they use?
0: That is fascinating, especially given that the Republicans have tended to have an older base that's probably more conscious of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, so many counterfactuals this election. Um, building off of a point that you raised a bit earlier, uh, it does seem like pollsters were off again this election as they were in 2016. They underestimated President Trump's support to some extent. Why do you think that is? And do these pollsters have a path towards rebuilding their credibility? That
1: is an exceptional question, Um, you know, and I think there's a couple of different ways to look at this. One is sort of the national polls. Uh, You know, I think I truly believe when this is all, you know, when all the votes are counted, especially in California, which takes a long time to count because they're still receiving ballots, you know, in the mail. uh, And there's just, you know, quite frankly, millions and millions and millions of votes to be counted. But with all that said, I think Joe Biden's going to have about, you know, fifty you know 52 to 53% of the popular vote. He's currently I believe, you know, in 50.9 or 50 close to 51. Um, you know, that's a pretty robust victory and that's sort of in line with what the national polls were saying in terms of, you know, just his his raw, you know, the the raw uh percentage that he was going to get. So with that said though, there's a lot of variation in terms of, you know, where the polls got wrong. A lot of places where they got wrong, you know, quite frankly, were uh, you know, in Republican leaning states. Perhaps the most salient um, miss that the polling had was in Florida. You know, there were polls, you know, there were polls suggest- suggesting, you know, that uh, that Joe Biden was going to win that state by about a point or two. And I believe in the, you know, as we record this podcast, Uh, Donald Trump is winning that state by about four or five percent. You know, that's about, you know, uh, a seven point miss or so. Uh, So the polls, you know, the polls were off in in, in states like Florida. Ohio ended up being, um, you know, a race that wasn't as close as the polls indicated. Um, You know, North Carolina was as close. But, you know, the polls had it wrong with respect to the Senate race in North Carolina with respect to the Senate race in Maine, Maine was much, you know, even though it's a democratic state, much closer than the polls anticipated. So, you know, those state polls, um, you know, some states got it, you know, pretty wrong, especially in Florida. Um, You know, and some of the explanations for this, I've heard explanations and the one that sounds pretty salient is that we're entering this sort of dynamic where, you know, we have systematic non-response bias where, Perhaps it's just, you know, the fact that Democrats are more likely to answer the phone and tell and share with the pollster, you know, who they're going to vote for. Uh, you know, generally, the shy Trump uh, theory is predicated on, you know, these Trump voters not sharing with pollsters who they're going to vote. Right. Um, you know, because of social desirability or what have you. Um you know, that's sort of a second stage. I think, you know, the bias could be baked in in the first stage where, you know, perhaps it's Republicans just don't answer the phones. And when you're getting response rates of about two to 5%, um, you know, in these sort of, um, you know, uh, call and vote uh, polling, that's a problem. Um, so, you know, I think the polling industry with respect to the state polls have a lot of work to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the shy Trump voter explanation, I think does have a lot of merit to it. There were some polls in New Hampshire that were done a couple of weeks before the election that showed Biden with a double digit lead. But then when the respondents were asked who they thought the majority of their neighbors were voting for, the majority said Donald Trump. And so I think maybe there is like a greater amount of support for the president than would be just indicated through traditional polling. It's it's really interesting stuff. Um Pivoting from that, it's interesting that, though Biden has won back some of the states that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016, uh, President Trump has maintained the majority of his supporters and Democrats haven't really made any major inroads into new areas. So if President Trump loses the election, can we interpret this as a repudiation of Trump and Trumpism?
1: That's a great question. Um you know, so so there are two angles to look at this. You can look at this at the national level, and if Joe Biden does end up clinching about you know fifty two, fifty three percent of the popular vote, he's going to have the second highest uh, vote share by a challenger, um, you know, since the consolidation of the two party system after the Civil War. Uh, You know, it's a higher vote share than Ronald Reagan won against Jimmy Carter. The only vote share that tops in is, you know, FDR's uh, unseating of Herbert Hoover in 1932. So looking at it in terms of, you know, the national dynamics, it was a complete repudiation of Donald Trump, um, you know, in his four years as president. Not you know, incumbent presidents rarely lose, but Donald Trump is losing by a historic margin um, in the national popular vote for an incumbent. Uh, the reason why it's a little bit muddled is, you know, looking at the Senate and the House House races, uh, you know, we the Republicans gained in the House. Um, the Republicans held the Senate and limited their losses as of this point to two seats um in Colorado and Arizona. That doesn't really sound like a repudiation of Donald Trump or uh the Republican party at large to me. Uh you know, and I, I do think that um the Republicans if you look at their uh you know what what they've been saying since the you know the since Tuesday There hasn't been a lot of Republicans that are saying, you know, cut it out with, you know, these unfounded claims about voter fraud or, you know, come out in support of counting elections. Um, You know, there are 53 Republican senators and, you know, there are about 190 Republican House members. And I haven't heard a single one. So, you know, I, I do think that within the Republican Party, there will probably be no introspection, and there'll probably be you know a double downing of Trumpism because Donald Trump has shown um, ambitious Republicans, particularly ones that want to win the nomination in 2024 assuming that Joe Biden wins and there's a very high likelihood that that's going to be the case uh, you know they've shown that that sort of positioning works. And, you know, you can tap into, you know, a subset of voters that did not turn out for Mitt Romney and, you know, didn't turn out in 2018. You know, looking at the states in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, those were states where Democrats swept uh, nationwide and I'm sorry, statewide. And, you know, they didn't show up in 2018, but they sure showed up and made it pretty close in 2020. So. You know, I I, I don't I don't think that we're seeing a very clear repudiation um, institutionally of Donald Trump.
0: Well, I think this lack of a repudiation is very interesting in the context of the 200,000 Americans who have died on account of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about how COVID has impacted the election.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Unfortunately, I think when it comes to the COVID pandemic, and you know, I, I've published a little bit on this, and um, a lot of you know my ongoing research looks at sort of this polarization when it comes to the government's response to the pandemic and perceptions. Undeniably, you're seeing polarization on public health as it relates to the pandemic. Um, so, for example, there are some Americans that believe that Donald Trump has, you know, despite the 230, 240,000 deaths and the increasing trends in COVID uh, cases and and mortality, uh, that Donald Trump has done a good job, Uh, you know, and they view that the pandemic, um, you know, is going well, right? Even though that has no basis in empirical reality, right, Um, especially relative to where we were in March and April, uh, Republicans are less likely to suge- uh, to share that they're, you know, that they're in favor of masks and, you know, that they're going to use masks. Um, you know, they, they <laughs> you know, they're, they're relatively in not in favor of social distancing. So we're seeing polarization when it comes to the COVID pandemic, and that truly has helped President Trump keep this election, at least with respect to the Electoral College, relatively close. Um, you know, and so I, I think that's troubling for the country in a couple of different respects. Uh, the first is, you know, we're not listening to public health officials. Um, you know, the, the evidence is clear. Wearing a mask is effective. Um, you know, the evidence is clear that, you know, we, we have to do more to prevent the spread of the virus. The virus is much worse. At least, you know, I'm, I'm broadcast, you know, we're talking and I'm in El Paso. Um, we're getting about 3000 cases a day. We're a hot spot for the country. Um, we're locking down again, uh, so you know I, I was sort of surprised, frankly, uh, that Donald Trump, uh, you know, did as well as he did on on uh, Tuesday, given where we're at with the COVID pandemic. Um, so, you know, it, it was it was a little bit troubling, uh, you know, for me, in terms of the public health perspective, that we're seeing partisan polarization on that. And we're really seeing, you know, a lot of partisan polarization with respect to reality about the COVID pandemic.
0: Um, I think the other salient event that has happened over the course of 2020 has been the protests against uh, racial injustice as a result of the death of George Floyd. And I'm wondering how you think that has impacted the election.
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Um, you know, that that was, you know, we're, we're having a national dialogue as it relates to, um, you know, racial inequities in society, and police brutality. And, you know, there's a sort of you listen to this punditry, you know, in Washington, D.C., there was this sort of, you know, um, that there was, uh, you know, some sort of cost to be paid. Uh, you know, Republicans tried to paint Democrats as, you know, the party of lawlessness. It was a big part of Donald Trump's campaign about, you know, destroying the suburbs and, and you know, the like based on these protests. Uh, it's clear that it didn't work. Um, you know, so I, I do think that it affected a lot of um you know, a lot of people's sort of uh, their propensity to participate in the political process. Um, you know, no question that African American turnout is higher in 2020 than it was in 2016. Uh, you know, through D- Stacey Abrams's you know, great efforts in Georgia. Right. Um, you know, Georgia's much closer. Joe Biden is, you know, uh, pretty well positioned, you know, to to potentially carry Georgia, which is something unthinkable four years ago. Um, You know, so there has been this mobilization of people of color. Um, I do preface that, uh, you know, with the countervailing trend in this respect, where undoubtedly Donald Trump, um, you know, Gained amongst you know certain Latino populations, you saw that in Miami Dade, um, you know a county with, you know a lot of Latinos, but of course like everywhere else, it's very heterogeneous. Latinos are not this monolithic sort of group, right? Um, so you know I, I think we're going to need a little bit more data to see how much of you know the events surrounding race and um, racial justice, how much of that influences election.
0: So if Biden overcomes the Trump campaign's legal challenges and wins the presidency. What will his agenda look like, given that Republicans may maintain a slim majority in the Senate?
1: That is a great question. Um, you know, it's something that I sort of wrestle with as I look at the the landscape of the U.S. Senate, um, you know, and as a congressional scholar, you know, I think a lot more about Congress than I do about the president. Uh, you know, I, I think, to put it bluntly, um, It's either the Democrats take control in Georgia or it's gridlock and it's nothing, Um, you know, and and I think because of this hyperpolarization that we've witnessed in the U.S. Senate and divided and especially with the dynamic of uh, divided government. Joe Biden, his legislative agenda with the Republican Senate is essentially dead. Um, you know, you might get a COVID stimulus bill. It'll be far less comprehensive than with a Democratic Senate. You'll have to make tough compromises. Any sort of, uh, you know, democracy reforms as it relates to H.R. 1, which was the big House package um, in terms of trying to modernize elections and increase suffrage. Uh you know, that's dead. Other progressive priorities uh, such as D.C. statehood and Puerto, Rica, Puerto Rican statehood are obviously dead as well. And any sort of judiciary reform is, of course, dead. Um, so, you know, the cynic in me also suggests that, you know, Joe Biden under a Republican Senate would be lucky to have his cabinet confirmed. Um, you know, it's clear that Mitch McConnell, um, you know, is not going to allow Joe Biden to fill any sort of vacancies on the federal judiciary. Uh, if there is a Supreme Court, um, you know, Justice Breyer is you know well into his eighties. Uh, if there's a Supreme Court uh, vacancy, I find it very hard to believe that Mitch McConnell will let Joe B- Joe Biden fill it, even if that vacancy day- yeah, two days after his inauguration. I think our the U.S. Senate is fundamentally broken. And, uh, you know, and I think uh, with the Republican Senate, I think any sort of hopes for, uh, you know, Joe Biden legislatively or judicially, uh, you know, I, I think that's essentially dead on arrival.
0: That's scary, frankly, that the two parties in this country are just so diametrically opposed and also so evenly balanced in a way that we just cannot... Move forward with anything as a country. That's that's really fascinating that you bring that up and deeply troublesome.
1: And one thing I'd like to add, you know, sort of briefly on that, is Mitch McConnell is an agent of his party. Um, you know, so this isn't, you know, an indictment on you know Mitch McConnell as an individual. Uh, I, I quite frankly don't see any ap- appetite within the Republican uh, Senate conference, especially with a median member, uh, to, to do anything with respect to legislatively or the judiciary when it comes to a potential Biden administration. So this sort of transcends beyond Mitch McConnell um, because he's just, frankly, an agent of his party.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's a good you know, lead into my final question. Um What needs to happen to lower the temperature in this country? And are you optimistic about our political future?
1: That's a great question. Um, I'll I'll share some optimism and then I'll share some of the opposite. (laughs) Uh, The voter turnout, unquestionably, is optimistic. You know, I I do think that independent of who you voted for, uh, that's, that's reason for optimism. People stayed in line in Texas for hours to vote. Um, in some places. Um, people took the time to register and people took the time to request an absentee ballot, independent of who you voted for. Uh, that is a great development in American democracy. Um, you know, we we want more participation of voters, particularly voters that, you know, from communities that traditionally have been excluded from politics. I think that's a great thing. Um, inst- institutionally, I, I'm very worried for the country. Um, I'm very worried for the fact that we're we're getting institutions that are compl- increasingly out of sync with the country at large. Um, you know, some defenders of the United States Senate like to mention that, you know, we have to disperse power and that, you know, Madison had this sort of... Um, You know, grandiose idea of, you know, dispersing power to stop, you know, tyranny of the majority, so to speak, you know, just a very rough reading of Federalist 51 here, Uh, you know, but he didn't want to give, certainly he wouldn't agree with the notion that, you know, a substantial minority should have a veto point um, at the expense of the majority. And that's what you're getting in the United States Senate. Uh, Moving forward, it was critical for the Democrats to win the Senate this cycle, Because if you look at 2022, there's not a lot of targets. And if you look at 2024, Democrats will inevitably lose seats because time is running out in places like West Virginia, in Ohio, and in Montana, uh, for example. So, you know, Republicans left a lot of seats on the table in 2018 because it was a Republican midterm. So... You know the Democrats have, you know, they're staring, you know, with a coalition that's very concentrated geographically, and that works nationally, uh, but within our institutions, uh, particularly in the U.S. Senate, um, you know, it, it's it's not working in their favor. And I will say this um, normatively: it's 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 pretty bad um, to have an institution where the median seat, right, the fiftieth. Seed to determine control. The fifty-first uh, isn't is not you know seven or nine points more Republican than the country at large, because the preference of that senator is going to be out of sync with the preferences of the country. And so when you're looking at um, you know issues like climate change or you know Medicare for all or you know universal health care rather or uh, gun control, uh, those are Relatively popular ideas nationally, but you're not going to you're not going to see any sort of, uh, you know, any sort of movement on that in the US Senate, because the US Senate just represents a different, you know, median constituency. That's a problem for democracy. And I think the, the underlying dynamic here. Is that our institutions distort the value of a vote. Uh, You know, a vote cast in uh, Los Angeles is worth much, much less than a vote cast in Cheyenne, Wyoming, or a vote cast in, uh, you know, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. That's a problem. Um, you know, And so the way that votes are translated into seats institutionally, I think, is a long-term dynamic that um, you know, doesn't bode well for democratic representation, but also doesn't vote, uh, bode well for democratic accountability. Um, and I think that's a pretty bad place to be in terms of a, a democratic polity.
0: Well, Dr. Algara, thank you so much for your time. This has been an extremely insightful conversation. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, everyone. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you will join us for our next episode. And if you want more information, you can find us at Rockefeller.Dartmouth.edu.